Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. As we begin this morning, let me tell you, this will be a message where we will turn to several other passages in the Bible to help us understand this one. If you're using your Revelation journal, then you can keep it open to Revelation 11 while you turn to the other passages. If you're just using your Bible this morning, you'll want to be able to mark your place in Revelation 11 so that you can return there after we visit some of these other texts. And I'm going to actually share a lot more on screen than what we will turn to. It's one of those messages that we kind of need to get the light shined on this from a whole variety of perspectives so that we understand the whole Bible version of uh, the interpretation of these verses. So I'm going to start this morning by giving you the other chapters that we're going to go to right up front. So you can mark them now with a bookmark if you want, or a piece of paper or something. Okay, so here they are. Ezekiel 40, Revelation 21, Zechariah 2, Galatians 4. I'm going to have you turn to all of those places this morning. So I encourage you to mark them right now. And if you have kids, uh, help them find them now and mark them so that they can follow along as we go. I know that our youngest like to be able to follow along and to read along with the text, but they're maybe not always able to find it quite as fast as everybody else. So help them out now. Find those verses and mark those places for them. And while you're marking those places, let me just kind of review a couple of key themes we've seen so far in Revelation that are going to have bearing on what we talk about this morning. So first, the place that we're in. We're currently between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. We're in the judgment section of the book. That's Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. The scroll with seven seals has been opened. And when the seventh seal was broken open, that began the trumpet judgments. And just like there was an interlude, a break between the sixth and seventh seals, now we're in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And as we study together today, keep in mind the main theme of the book. Jesus is bringing a covenant lawsuit, divorce proceedings against Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. God says that he was a husband to Israel, but Israel has been unfaithful. That unfaithfulness finally came to a head in their rejection and murder of Jesus. And now, because they have rejected him, they're being divorced, judged. And Jesus will take a new bride, the church. By the end of the book, we find ourselves at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, this morning... We are just going to tackle two verses, Revelation 11, 1 and 2, okay? But it's going to be loaded as we try to see from all these other places in Scripture what John is getting at in these verses. So let's read Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Just follow along as I read. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months." Well, my original plan was to preach the first 14 verses of the chapter today, but I'm not going to. There's two reasons um, why I've chosen to just look at the first two verses. First of all, commentators are pretty much agreed that this section, chapter 11, is the most difficult section of the book of Revelation to interpret. So it's going to take a little time and some hard work, 
And second, these verses can only be rightly understood by going back to the Old Testament background, by seeing how the themes fit together in this overall message of the whole Bible. It's kind of like studying an iceberg. These two verses are just the tip that sticks up above the waterline this morning. To really understand them, we have to dig deep, dive deep down under the surface of what we see in these two verses. So we're only covering two verses, but this might be one of the most challenging messages to understand. And I'll do my best to give you a simple but thorough explanation. I'll ask you to work hard to follow the argument this morning. And we'll go to lots of other Bible passages to shed light on these verses. Now, remember, what's our number one rule for interpreting as we go through the book of Revelation? Well, we have to constantly be going back to the Old Testament and to the teachings of Jesus to understand the imagery that John uses. John knew his Bible, and it shaped his message and the way that he expressed it. So this morning, we're going to visit a number of different places throughout the Bible to help us understand what's happening here in Revelation 11. So before we go to those background passages, let's just look at the basics of what we see in these two verses. Let's kind of define our terms. First of all, the measuring rod. When a measuring rod shows up in the Bible, it has to do with defining the boundaries of something. It might be defining the boundaries by separating it from something else. Often it's separating the holy from the common. It might be defining the boundaries for the purpose of protection the thing measured will be protected from some judgment, or it might be defining the boundaries for something that's going to be built. Well, in this case, it's really a combination of all those meanings. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Next, the temple. John is told to measure the temple, but the word that's used here for the temple is specifically just the central building, not the whole temple complex. It's the the holy place and the holy of holies, the, the temple building, but the word does not include the courts outside. That also, by the way, just a side note, this passage makes sense if the temple is still standing when John writes. It has a symbolic meaning, and we will get to that, but for this For this to make sense, it's most reasonable to believe that the temple in Jerusalem is still standing as John has this vision, which means it's happening probably mid-60s AD. It refers to those who worship there, in other words, in the temple. Well, who is that? Who worships in the holy place? That's the priest. And then it refers to the court outside the temple. So the courtyard, the outer courts, are not part of what is being measured. It's not part of what is being established or protected or defined. The temple itself is being separated from the courts. Okay? And John is told, leave that out. Now, in our English Bible, as you read that, it just sounds like it means leave that out of what you're measuring. Literally, though, what that says is cast it out. It's a very active thing. It's not just leave it out. It's cast it out. We'll talk about that eventually this morning. He mentions the nations. Usually the nations is in contrast with Israel. But remember, at this time, we have people from every tribe and tongue and nation becoming part of the people of God. So the nations here is specifically the Gentiles that are coming to attack the temple. 
to trample it. It's the Roman army. But at the same time, we need to remember the lines are being redrawn here. There are Gentiles who become part of Israel by faith, and there are Jews who reject Jesus and therefore are no longer part of the people of God. They've become spiritual Gentiles. The, the language here of trampling the courts, that should take our mind back to things that Jesus said. If you remember when we looked at Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, we said that it had parallel passages, Luke 21 and Mark 13. Well, in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, and remember the Olivet Discourse is the prophecy of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. In Luke's version, he says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He refers to this time period as days of vengeance. So it's judgment that's coming on the temple and it's going to be trampled by the Gentiles. Luke says, in the words of Jesus, Luke has all of that recorded for us and John's language here is almost identical. And remember, the book of Revelation is John's version of the Olivet Discourse. Okay, And Luke says, after that, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So Luke is very clear. The lips of Jesus tell us that what he's saying is going to happen within a generation of him saying it. He says it in AD 30. It happens in AD 70. 40 years is a biblical generation. We're right on track, right on target. And then we have the time period that is given here in Revelation 1 and 2 of 42 months. Is that literal? Is it symbolic? While the Roman siege of Jerusalem does actually last for three and a half years, 42 months, I think it's actually primarily intended to be a symbolic number. We'll talk about that towards the end this morning. So let me give you just a brief summary of what the message is before we dig in on the Old Testament background. The basic message here, it might sound strange, but by the end of the message, I think you'll understand it, is this. The church will be preserved during the coming tribulation, while Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed by a Gentile invasion. Yeah, that's what the verses are saying. The church will be preserved during the coming tribulation, while Jerusalem will be destroyed by a Gentile invasion. All right, let's dig into the Old Testament background. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 40. 40 is really the start. We're going to kind of skim our way through to chapter 48. In Ezekiel, we see the temple being measured, just like in Revelation 11. The last nine chapters of Ezekiel are all about the end times temple that will be built. Chapters 40 to 48. And when I say end times temple that will be built, I have to clarify what we're talking about. Remember, the first temple was the one that Solomon built. It was destroyed when the Jews were carried off into exile. And God promised through the prophets that the temple would be rebuilt. But those promises were intended by God to point to something greater than just a physical temple. There is a physical temple that was rebuilt in the land. We call it the second temple. There's a whole, the whole time period is referred to as the second temple period. Ezra tells us that when the foundation for that temple was laid, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But the next verse tells us 
that the older folks did not react the same way. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Why did they weep? Because the temple that is being built is nothing like Solomon's temple. It was nowhere near as big and grand and glorious. So those who had never seen Solomon's temple were thrilled. We've got our temple back. But those who had seen Solomon's temple were weeping because this temple was nothing like it. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, when he's ministering in Israel, that second temple is still standing. Now, Herod was in the middle of a massive expansion project. He's adding on, making it much more grand and glorious. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple courts, and Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews respond, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? 46 years is not from the original building of the temple. 46 years is Herod's expansion project on this temple. And then John explains what Jesus meant by what he said. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. It was a prediction of his resurrection. But here's the point we need to realize. Jesus taught that he was replacing the temple. The physical temple in Jerusalem, the second temple, Herod's temple, is coming to an end. But the risen Jesus will replace the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's the great high priest. And when he ascends into heaven after his resurrection, he will pour out the Holy Spirit on his people to represent him. And all of those who receive the Spirit, in other words the church, will then be the temple of God. Together, they will be the dwelling place of God's Spirit. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in Ephesians 2, Paul describes the church as the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone of the building, and he says that the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus is the prophesied temple, and the church is the temple. So in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of this great end times temple, but it's not a physical temple. We are not waiting for a physical temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Something greater has come. Jesus is the temple, and Jesus' people are now the temple. And that's what the prophet's descriptions of this temple are ultimately picturing for us. It's the church, the new covenant people of God that are being built into God's temple. All right, so you turned to Ezekiel. Now, in Ezekiel, the temple is measured and it's huge. It's several times larger than even Herod's temple after the massive expansion project or or than Solomon's temple. Look at Ezekiel 40, 
Okay, Ezekiel is brought in a vision to Jerusalem, and we'll jump in at verse 3. Ezekiel 40, verse 3. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. That should sound familiar. That's what we see in Revelation 11. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So just like in Revelation 11, we have a man with a measuring stick measuring the temple. And then throughout chapters 40, 41, and 42, the temple is measured in detail. At the end of chapter 42, go ahead and look there, the outer edge of the temple complex is measured. Look at the description in chapter 42, verse 20. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long and 500 cubits broad, to make a separation between the holy and the common. So the part that is measured or separated, set off from the part outside, is the holy part. The holy part is what was measured, and everything outside that is common. The measurement has marked a separation. Then in chapter 43, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Look at chapter 43, verse 7. 43, 7, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. So the glory of the Lord, God himself, will dwell in this end times temple forever. And now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 47. So flip over to 47. Maybe the most striking thing about the description of this temple in Ezekiel is that there is a river that begins inside it and flows out of it. Look at chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. So the man with the measuring reed is now showing Ezekiel this river and measuring it as they go. So it's, it's going from the temple building out through the temple courts and then out beyond. Okay. And in verse 3, it gets to be ankle deep. In verse 4, it's knee deep. Then it's waist high. And then in verse 5... Ezekiel says, it was a river that I could not pass through. The water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. In verse 8, it flows down into the sea and turns the salt water fresh. Verses 9 and 10, it brings life to the sea, fish of many different kinds. And in verse 12, on the banks of this river are trees that grow fruit year-round for food, and their leaves are for healing. Then when you go to chapter 48, the last chapter, look at the very last sentence of the book. The last part of the last verse, verse 35 of chapter 48. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is There. So what is this vision of Ezekiel communicating? Well, to help us see it, I want you to go to the next passage I'm going to have you turn to, Revelation 21. So flip over to Revelation 21. Okay. Ezekiel tells us that in the temple, God's glory will dwell there forever. Well, what place is that? Where does God's glory 
dwell forever. Look with me at Revelation 21, first three verses. John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So the New Jerusalem is the place where God's glory will dwell with his people forever. Now remember, the New Jerusalem is not a literal city. It's the church, the bride of Christ. Look at verse 9. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, now remember, the here then see pattern that we've seen in the book of Revelation. John hears something, then he looks to see, but he sees something different from what he heard. But it's not really different. It's the same thing described a different way. So if you remember back in chapter 5, the throne room scene, John is told, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he hears Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, what does he see? The slain lamb. Something completely different. But not different. Because it's both descriptions of Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the slain lamb. Okay? Same thing is happening here. John hears the angel say, okay, he hears, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, And when he looks, what does he see? Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city is the bride. Think about the, I mean, the foundations, you've got the the 12 apostles, you've got the 12 tribes, you've got, it's the whole people of God all together. It's God dwelling in the midst of his people forever. The new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, the wife of the lamb. And we know who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. So who's the new Jerusalem? It's the church, the people of God. And the glory of God will dwell forever in the new Jerusalem. In other words, God will dwell with his people, his church, his bride forever. That's what Ezekiel's vision of the end times temple is picturing. It's the church. It's the people of God dwelling with him forever. What about the river that flows out of that temple? John has actually already talked about this in his gospel. In John 7, John tells us that Jesus stood up in Jerusalem on a feast day. And he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus says his heart He's referring to himself. The grammar is a little difficult in English, but the living water flows from Jesus to everyone who believes. Who believes in him? The church, his people. And then listen to what John says in the next verse to explain this. Now this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the living water is the Spirit, sent out from Jesus to all who believe in him. But that doesn't happen until Jesus is glorified. In other words, after his resurrection and ascension. Well, what happens at that point? Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out on all believers. It starts in Jerusalem and then it flows out from there to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the earth. It's, as this river of living water flows out, it gets bigger and bigger, deeper and deeper. More and more people receive the living water of the Spirit. More and more people believe in Jesus. The church grows. The kingdom of Christ grows. And that's still happening today. Living water flows out and more and more people become part of the church by believing in Jesus. In the New Jerusalem, in Revelation 22, the river of the water of life flows through the city with the tree of life, which is for the healing of the nations on either side of the river, just like the vision in Ezekiel. So in Revelation 11, our two verses this morning, when we see John measuring the temple, all of that background should be in our mind. But there's more. Turn with me now to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, second to last book in the Old Testament, right before Malachi, the Italian prophet. I'm glad people laughed. Okay. I was hoping that wouldn't just like... Zechariah 2. The book begins with a call for Judah and Jerusalem to repent. The historical situation is this. They've been in exile because of their sin. God is about to bring them back into the land. They've been in Babylon. They're about to come back. And when they come back, the second temple will be built. The one that Herod is expanding in Jesus' day. But by now, hopefully you realize that God bringing them back and rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple is actually a picture of something greater. Yes, they will literally come back into the land and the temple will be rebuilt, but that's not God's ultimate goal. He's going to enact a new covenant. As we've already seen, his people will not be just Jews, but Jew and Gentile, all who have faith in Jesus. Now, I told you Zechariah 2. I'm actually going to have you flip back to chapter 1 to get started. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So God is marking out, measuring his city, his temple, and we have the imagery of this measuring recurring again. I, I, want, to see, I want you to see one other place. You, see, you stay there in Zechariah, but I'm going to show you Jeremiah also uses this same imagery when he's talking about the new covenant. Okay? In Jeremiah 31, we have well-known verses. This is verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there we have the context of a husband-wife relationship that this covenant has been broken. 
okay? And that's resulting in a new covenant with a new bride, okay? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. How does he do that? By the Spirit of God, okay? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, God and his people dwelling together. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah is speaking of. And then, a few verses later, verses 38 and 39, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther. So the new covenant is referred to by Jeremiah as the rebuilding of the city, with a measuring line showing its expansion. Now, you're in Zechariah 2. Look at the beginning of chapter 2 of Zechariah. We have another scene of measuring. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So here we see that the city is expanded greatly. The city has such a multitude of people that it is like villages without walls. It just keeps stretching out over the countryside, not contained in a small area. This is telling us that the dwelling place of God is no small place and it is expanding. The new covenant home of God's people is growing. It's the new Jerusalem, the church, you could say. That as the church grows, as the new Jerusalem grows, we see the kingdom of Christ expanding to cover more and more of the earth. And again, like in Ezekiel and Revelation, we have the glory of God in the midst of the city, in the midst of his people. Here in Zechariah 2, God says he will be a wall of fire all around. So the city doesn't have walls. But God will be a wall of fire for the city. When Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden because of their sin, what guarded the entrance? Cherubim with flaming swords. Fire marking off the separation between what was holy and what is common. Think about the story of the Exodus as the Israelites leave Egypt. They're led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Don't think of it as something that's changing. It's just, you know, what fire looks like in the daytime. You see all the smoke, and at nighttime, your eyes are more drawn to the flame. It's the same thing. It's pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they camp there, and then what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind. He leads his army out. He traps the Israelites by the Red Sea, and here's what Moses says happened In Exodus 14, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt 
and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the fire cloud becomes a wall of fire separating God's people from God's enemies, separating the holy from the common, marking off those whom God is protecting. And here in Zechariah 2, God says he will be a wall of fire in this new Jerusalem, protecting the people that he has marked off. Think about that idea of protection in what we've already seen in Revelation. Just before the seventh seal, when we were in that interlude, we had 144,000 that were marked for protection. Judgment was coming, but the 144,000 would not be harmed. Just before the seventh trumpet now, we have the temple being measured, marked off for protection. And those who make up this temple, the church, are protected, preserved in the tribulation or judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem. Again, it's not that the literal temple will be protected. We know that's not the case. Jesus prophesied its destruction, and we've seen that over and over in Revelation. And it happened in A.D. 70. The temple was destroyed. But the temple in Revelation 11, while it's the physical temple in Jerusalem that that reinforces the imagery, the temple in, in Revelation 11 is a symbol. It's the church. Remember, the church is the temple of God, the new Jerusalem. We noted that Zechariah 2 says the city has expanded across the countryside because of the great multitude of people in it. It's a picture of this expanding city. And this too is a consistent picture throughout scripture. The dwelling place of God is expanding, taking in more people. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and their descendants were commissioned to do what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is a worldwide commission. They are to fill the earth and have dominion over every living thing on the earth. In other words, as time went on, they were to expand the borders of the garden until it covered the whole earth. You have the garden, and then there's the world outside. The world outside still needed to be cultivated, cultured, and God's dwelling place, Eden, was to be expanded until it covered the whole earth. That was God's plan all along. Think now about a story that comes shortly after. Think of the story of Noah. First of all, we have a judgment situation, right? What, what is the flood? It's judgment that's falling on the earth. Does God mark out measure out any place for protection in that judgment? Yes. Measurement dimensions are given very carefully for the ark. Make it this many cubits long and this many cubits wide and this many cubits high. God's measuring out the place that he will protect. And so those who are within the ark escape the judgment. 
Just like in Zechariah, the city is marked out. It's measured for protection. Just like in Revelation 11, the temple is marked out. It's measured for protection in the judgment that's about to fall. Here in Noah's story, the ark is measured out, marked out for protection. After the flood, what does God say to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. There's the mission again. There's the same vision. The whole earth. After Noah's grandson, Canaan, the son of Ham, sins against Noah, God curses him, but God blesses Shem and Japheth. So in Genesis 9, we read this. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, now, Noah's son, Shem, is the one whose line will bring the Israelites. The name Shem is where we get our word Semitic. So the Semitic peoples are descended from Shem. And here God blesses Shem. He says that the Lord is the God of Shem. Then look at what is said about Japheth. In this story, Japheth is just like the other people. Not those who are God's enemies, that's Canaan. Not the people of the Lord, that's Shem. And what happens to Japheth? God will enlarge him, expansion again, and he will come to dwell in the tents of Shem. Somewhere along the line, the descendants of Japheth come to be part of the household of Shem. And since Japheth has greatly expanded, then Shem's tents must also greatly expand since Japheth is now part of them. What is that picturing? It's picturing the same thing as Zechariah 2. You're still in Zechariah 2. In verse 4, we saw the multitude of people in the city that makes it sprawl out over the countryside. Look down now at verses 10 and 11. Zechariah 2, 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Okay, so we have a chiasm here. Remember the Oreo cookie structure? Remember that idea? Where we have two things that are similar and then something else sandwiched in between? So what do we have? Well, the beginning of verse 10 says that God will dwell in their midst. The end of verse 11, again, God will dwell in their midst. And what is sandwiched in between? Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. The nations that come into Jerusalem are becoming part of the people of God. Japheth is coming into the tents of Shem. The nations are flowing into Jerusalem. You may remember last week in Revelation 10, we saw that the mystery was being fulfilled. The mystery being Jew and Gentile together in the people of God. The land and the sea, Jew and Gentile. Many peoples and nations and languages and kings all together. The kingdom of God is an expansive kingdom growing with people from every nation. Now come back with me to Revelation 11. 
Let's read verses 1 and 2 one more time before we move on to the couple of things we've still got outstanding to deal with here. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Okay, so we've seen that measuring is like establishing, marking out for protection as judgment is coming. What is it that's going to be protected here? I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So we've seen that the temple and the altar within it is the church, the new covenant people of God. Jesus said he was the temple. After he pours out his spirit, the New Testament writers make it very clear the church is the temple. And who serves in the temple? The priests do. What are we now? A royal priesthood. In the new covenant era, we've all become priests serving with the great high priest Jesus. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. So there's a separation here. The temple, the church, will be preserved during the coming judgment. But the outer court, those who don't belong to the temple, those who don't belong to the church, will face judgment. And when the text says, leave that out, it literally means cast it out. Hold that thought. We're going to talk about that in a minute. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. That's speaking of the coming judgment, the judgment that will fall on Jerusalem and the Jews in 70 AD. The nations, the Roman army, those with them, will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Why 42 months? We're going to talk about that in a moment, too. So these are the two things we have left to deal with. What does it mean that the court is cast out, and why 42 months? All right, so first of all, let's explain this idea that the outer court is cast out. Turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. <clears throat> While you're turning there, listen to this quick review. If you remember way back in the beginning of this series in January, we saw the theme of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus is coming on the clouds. That's judgment language. And those who pierced him will see him coming in judgment. Who pierced him? The New Testament is very clear. That's the Jews who rejected Jesus. And Jesus foretold this. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, he describes the judgment that comes in A.D. 70 in great detail. And then he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. He means exactly what he says. A biblical generation, 40 years, and this judgment will fall. That's exactly what happened. And all the tribes of the land will mourn because of him. Israel, the 12 tribes of the land, is who will face this judgment. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Israel is facing judgment for murdering, for rejecting Jesus. So the scroll, the legal document that unfolds all of this judgment, is a covenant document. It's a divorce document. Israel has been unfaithful, adulterous. They're now being divorced. And it opens up the new covenant. God takes a new bride, the church, culminating near the end of the book with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, now with all that in mind, listen to what Paul explains to these churches in Galatia. In this book, Paul is very concerned 
that these churches are turning away from the gospel. And how is it that they're doing that? They're going back into Judaism. They're going back to the rituals and laws and thinking that those things are what is going to give them standing before God. And Paul's warning them not to do that, but instead to hold fast to the gospel. So look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. 421. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. All right, so what's that saying? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. But Abraham was old and he didn't have any kids. God said that he would give Abraham and Sarah a son. But when it didn't happen, as quickly as Abraham thought it should, he thought he'd help things along. So he took Sarah's servant, Hagar, and had a son with her. That's Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan. God gave Sarah a son named Isaac. And it's Isaac's line through whom God establishes the nation of Israel. Isaac was the son that resulted from God's promise, not the result of man's efforts. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So Paul's going to use these two women, Hagar and Sarah, to illustrate for us the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. So listen closely. He writes, One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so Paul connects Hagar to Mount Sinai. In other words, to the old covenant law, the rituals and the ceremonies. He compares this to slavery. The law is not a bad thing. In chapter 3, he says the law is like a tutor or a schoolmaster training the people until they become free. But he also points out that the promise came first. God's promise to Abraham came before the law was given at Sinai. Just like God's promise of a son came before Abraham had Ishmael with But note the second connection that Paul makes in those verses. He says that Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The earthly city of Jerusalem, Paul says, is like Hagar. It's living in slavery to the law, not seeking the promise. The promise has come. Jesus has come. But the present Jerusalem is continuing under the law as if the promise had never been fulfilled. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above, okay, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So just like Sarah is contrasted to Hagar, 
And seeking God by his promise is contrasted with seeking to belong by the law. Now we have a heavenly Jerusalem contrasted with the earthly Jerusalem. It's a new Jerusalem. And just like the children of Sarah would be greater than the children of Hagar, the children of the heavenly Jerusalem will be greater than the children of the earthly Jerusalem. Who are the children of the heavenly Jerusalem? All those who have faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, from any nation. See, earlier in Galatians, Paul says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Just like Isaac was the son of the promise, so too all those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. Ishmael was physically descended from Abraham, but he wasn't the son of the promise. He was the firstborn son, so it looked like he would receive the inheritance, but that wasn't God's plan. It was man's effort. It was Abraham's plan. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul's writing to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, and he says, you are God's children in this new covenant. Not by birth, you're not Jewish, but birth isn't what gets you into the new covenant. You get into the new covenant by faith in God's promise, the promise that he fulfilled in Jesus. So you are true sons of Abraham. Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. If you were to go back to Genesis 16 and read the story, you would find that after Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. You see, in her mind, the inheritance would now belong to her descendants. She was carrying the firstborn, potentially the only one. And she began to think that she was better than Sarah. And the same thing is happening in the years leading up to A.D. 70. As Paul is writing, the Jews, those born according to the flesh, are persecuting those born according to the Spirit, the church. Which one is truly the sons of God? The ones who are children of the promise, the church. So what will happen? What will be the fate of the church in this persecution? What will be the fate of the Jews? Well, for the answer, look at the story of Hagar and Sarah. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. These verses that I just read are the reason why I had you turn to Galatians with me. Do you see what it says? When this conflict arose, Abram gave Sarah permission to cast Hagar out. That language, cast out, is exactly the language in Revelation 11 describing what happens to the outer court. The outer court is those who appear to belong. They're right there in the temple area. But when God measures, they're excluded. They're not part of the temple that is protected. 
They're not part of the church. These are the Jews who have rejected Jesus. They keep the outer ceremonies of the law, but they've missed the fulfillment of the promise. They've rejected Jesus, and now they will be judged. They will be cast out. And notice, too, that in what Paul says to the Galatians, he specifically compares the physical city of Jerusalem to the one who's being cast out. In Luke 13, Jesus speaks about how many will be surprised because they think they belong in the kingdom. He's speaking to the Jews when he says that, and they'll be shut out. They'll be on the outside. Here's what Jesus says. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. There will be people who thought they belonged in the kingdom, who are, Jesus says, cast out. And at the same time, people from nations all over the world will come in and belong. So, in Revelation 11... When the outer court is cast out, it's those Jews who thought they belonged to the kingdom because they're Jews. But God measures differently. When he stretches out his measuring reed to see who makes up the temple, his dwelling place, it is those who are of faith. And the Jews who rejected Jesus, who did not believe, are cast out. Let's go to our last question. Why 42 months? This is connected to some other time periods here in these chapters. If you were to follow along, like from from where we are now through the next couple of chapters, here's what you'd see. Uh, Verse 3 has 1,260 days. Verse 9, three and a half days. Verse 11, three and a half days again. Chapter 12 and verse 6 has 1,260 days again. And then 13.5 has 42 months again. I'm going to save all those connections for later. I just wanted to point it out for now. 42 months is three and a half years. That's the time period of the siege against Jerusalem leading up to AD 70. But I don't think that's primarily what is in view as John says this. 42 months shows up three other places in the Bible that I think are relevant for understanding the background here. I did a quick online search of the Bible for the number 42 to see if there were some associations I wasn't thinking of. And the first one that I'm going to share with you caught my attention probably because I had just listened to a sermon on this passage, a sermon by Carl Truman. In 2 Kings 2, there is this very strange account in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Elisha is confronted along the road outside of the city of Bethel by a gang of boys or young men. Now, Bethel was a place that was known for idolatry in those days in Israel. The boys are actually young men. Okay, they should be mature by this point. But they confront Elisha and they are mocking the man of God. And Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord and two she-bears come out of the woods. Now, 
since we just took a family vacation out west, we were tuned into the information about wild animals. And one of the accounts that was uh, a true story from Yellowstone in recent years was that there was a photographer who wanted some in the wild pictures of bears. So he put out some raw meat near the woods to attract them. That was the last thing he did. Bears can be ferocious, okay? These two she-bears come out of the woods and ripped apart 42 young men. Why does that happen? This is one of those stories that's in the Bible that you go, first of all, why did that happen? And second of all, why is it in the Bible? Well, why do the boys mock Elisha? This is, Carl Truman, I think, did a good job as I was listening, pointing this out, explaining this. He says, this is not one or two bad apples. This is a large gang of young men who all take an attitude of mockery toward the man of God and the word of God. Now, where does that come from? Well, he points out that this is a catastrophic failure of parenting. It's a culture of disdain for God's word. This is not Gentiles. This is not the world out there. This is God's people. In Leviticus chapter 26, and this is, we've, we've, every couple of weeks we come back to Leviticus 26 because this is blessings and cursings with God's covenant and what's going to happen to you if you don't obey, right? So here we go. Leviticus 26, 21. If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. God says, if you break my covenant, you're going to be judged sevenfold. What are we seeing in Revelation? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's sevenfold judgment being poured out on the Israelites because they have broken God's covenant. Listen to the next verse. Verse 22. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. Why does that happen to the young men at Bethel? Because it's what God said would happen if his covenant was broken. God will let loose the wild beasts against them. The Roman Empire in the Bible multiple times has been compared to a beast. And now the outer court, the Jews who rejected Jesus, will be trampled by the Romans for 42 months. Israel will be bereaved of her children. As the Jews themselves said at Jesus' trial before Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. 42 months of judgment. Another place 42 shows up is in the ministry of Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. Because of Ahab's sin and Israel's apostasy, Elijah prayed that God would shut the heavens, no rain, and bring a drought on Israel as a judgment. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus references this story, speaking of the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Three years and six months. 42 months of drought, of judgment. The number 42 also makes an appearance in the genealogy of Jesus, as Matthew gives it to us. Matthew structures Jesus' family line in three groups of 14 each. That adds up to 42. 
The first group is from Abraham to David, the second is from David to the exile, and the third is from the exile to the birth of Christ. 42 generations of waiting for the Messiah. And now that he's come, the Jews have rejected him. Those 42 generations of waiting, followed by rejecting, will now be answered with 42 months of judgment. And the persecuted church in John's day need not wait 42 generations, but merely 42 months until God's judgment falls on their enemies. In Elijah's day, it was 42 months of waiting for rain. In Jesus' genealogy, it's 42 generations of waiting for the Messiah. And all of that history is now coming to a climax. So what are we to make of these verses in Revelation 11? If I were to boil it down, here's what I would say. Two things. Number one, God divides. God causes the measurement that separates the holy from the common, that separates his people from his enemies. In Moses' day, Moses asked, who is on the Lord's side? In the next generation, Joshua asked, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So I ask you this morning, where are you? Are you part of God's people? Are you part of the church? Are you part of God's family? A son and an heir with Christ? Or are you on the outside looking in? Are you facing God's judgment? Remember, God measures differently. It's not the outer. You could be part of this church. You could be on the outside doing all the right things. But God measures differently. God divides. All things are open to the sight of him who knows hearts and minds. Every one of us will stand before God's throne one day and we will either be under his protection because of Christ or we will face his wrath because we've rejected Christ. We'll be cast out. God divides. And the second thing is, God protects. When God marks you out as one of his, he protects you. He preserves you. That doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens to you. But God uses those things for your good. Nothing reaches you that doesn't first come through his hands. Satan had to get God's permission to attack Job. Belonging to God is the safest place you could possibly be. Your eternity is secure. You are his. You are marked for protection. You wear his name. He's your loving father, your rock, your defender. And the greatest evidence of that protection is when Jesus himself stepped in and took his people's place, allowing the wrath of God to fall on him rather than on us. In the person of Jesus, God protects his people. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the words of this vision that John has here in Revelation 11 this morning, I pray that it would, it, it, I know it's difficult to sort out all the, the symbolism and the imagery and to understand exactly what's being said, but at the end of the day, I pray that this would give us a clear sight of who you are. Help us to remember that you are a God who divides and you are a God who protects. You divide 
You judge amongst people. You see right down to our heart. We pray that if there's any here this morning who have not responded in faith, who are in the place where they will face the judgment of God, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, the spirit that brings new life, would open their eyes, open their minds and their hearts to have faith in Jesus. And for those of us who do belong to you, would you give us a greater understanding and sight and appreciation of the fact that you protect us and that the greatest protection we've experienced is the protection given to us when Christ stepped in and took our place on the cross. May we live lives that are a response to the protection and the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.